Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, the podcast series of uh, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, FEPS. My name is Lance Londor, I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, and my guest today is Professor Jonathan Kirchner who is a professor at Boston College and who's written a number of books about the connection between money and power. And the reason uh, we invited Professor Kirchner today is that there is a very interesting anniversary. It's exactly uh, 50 years ago that the then president of the United States of America, Richard Nixon, uh, decided to cut the link between the US dollar and gold. In other words, the American government eliminated the convertibility of uh, the US dollar to gold. And most economists, also historians, especially economic historians, would agree that this was a very, very important step in post-war global history. While probably many other people well, neither is economists nor historians, just um, you know, holiday makers in the months of August may not be aware of the significance and the implications and the consequences of this. So uh, we invited Professor Kirchner, first of all, to explain the significance of uh, this step, which um, took place 50 years ago exactly, and then discuss further implications about global power and the role of uh, currencies. Uh, Professor Kirchner, how would you explain to an ordinary holiday maker in August the significance of this anniversary? Uh, Well, thanks for having me. And the significance of the anniversary uh, has to do with its service as a fundamental turning point in modern international monetary relations. So that when the US essentially ended what was then called the Bretton Woods International Monetary System, it sent international monetary relations into a very uncertain space. And what was going to follow from that uh, was very unclear for all participants. And it contributed to, although it was distinct from, uh, many of the difficulties in the international economy in the 1970s. Uh, Was it unexpected? Did this decision come, so to speak, out of the blue? I'm asking this because um, a famous Belgian economist, um, Robert Triffin, uh, was the one who somehow predicted that this uh, dollar convertibility, the dollar-based international currency regime, would come to an end at a certain point because of certain imbalances that had to develop in the international economy already in the 50s and early 60s? Well, it was shocking in that it was called uh, in abroad the Nixon shock. Uh, so, hmm. so that implies that there was some shock involved. Now, because I'm a professor, I'm going to go back in history a little bit. And if I go too far back in history, you can stop me. But the Bretton Woods system was designed after the Second World War to avoid what was seen as the catastrophic mistakes of the period between the first and the Second World War, which seemed to be an over-reliance on gold, which was deflationary, and also the way in which countries used to change the values of their currencies in order to gain competitive trading advantages, which led to kind of collective action problems. So after World War II, 
Everybody got together, led by the British and the Americans, and said, let's see if we can build a better system that avoids those problems. And what they invented was a system based largely on the dollar, so that instead of orienting the international monetary system around gold, they would orient it around the dollar, which made sense. The American economy was colossal uh, at that time compared to other economies. And so everybody would orient their currencies toward the dollar, all members of the International Monetary Fund, that is. And then the dollar would have this link to gold of $35 an ounce. And so specifically, the, the Nixon shock in 1971 was severing the tie of the dollar to gold. So that's the broad brush history. And your narrower question was about uh, what became known as the Triffin Dilemma. Uh, Robert Triffin, the Belgian economist, made the observation that in monetary systems like the one that was invented at Bretton Woods had this kind of fundamental problem within them, which is that for the world economy to operate normally, you needed a general growth in international liquidity, simply in the amount of money running around out there to finance things. And since the dollar was the reserve currency, it need, we, the world would need more and more dollars. But at the same time, the entire system was based on a promise that the dollar would, could be exchanged at $35 an ounce for gold. So here's the dilemma, right? Either there'll be an expansion of dollars and the monetary liquidity will be satisfactory for global growth, but that would undermine confidence in the basic promise that you could change your dollars for gold and gold for dollars. Or the U.S. would behave very responsibly and not expand the number of dollars in the system and therefore keep an iron link between the dollar and gold. But that mm. would be insufficient to provide the liquidity that the international economy would need. And so it would be, have a kind of depressive effect on the international economy. Now, Triffin was a very smart economist, but not a great political scientist because he feared that the U.S. would be too responsible and simply not be willing to mess with the dollar and provide the liquidity of possible. Instead, as we know, the U.S. took advantage of its position uh, to enjoy a lack of restraint with regard to the production of its currency that all other participants in the system did not enjoy. And so it made lots and lots of dollars, uh, undermining the gold dollar link. And that was the crisis that came to a head in which fundamental decisions had to be made by 1971, about what would happen with the system and the viability of the gold dollar link. Am I right um, to assume that this so-called Nixon shock was actually anticipated by the economic consequences of the Vietnam War? The Vietnam War was a part of it. Again, the basic problem was that there was a temptation. Anybody participating in this monetary system, if their currencies came under pressure, they had pledged to intervene in markets to keep their currencies within the rate at which it was fixed to the dollar. So they were had a certain type of macroeconomic discipline imposed on them. Now, there are lots of technical things they could do to try and uh, take care of that. And in fact, the International Monetary Fund was designed to take some of the edge off of the burdens of those adjustments. But again, the U.S. at the center of this system didn't face exactly those same constraints. Countries could send their dollars to the U.S. and get their gold back, but the U.S. actually discouraged them from doing that, and sometimes with a bit of a hard edge, threatening Germany, for example, that it might reduce the number of troops in West Germany uh, that the Americans had stationed there in the context of the Cold War. So your question is, how does this 
lack of constraint manifests itself. Now, in the Johnson administration, the Johnson administration wanted to finance the Vietnam War, but it also had an ambitious domestic social program. But it also yes. feared President Johnson was an extraordinarily savvy politician, that he couldn't do both of these things and do things like raise taxes and other what we might think of as responsible macroeconomic policies. So he took advantage of the place of the dollar in the system, really implicitly, not actually with thinking about it, but just because he could. And so the great society programs and the war on Vietnam were both partially financed by taking advantage of this special place for the dollar. Now, into the Nixon administration, we also see Nixon was more than anything, and he was many things, an extraordinarily savvy political animal. And he also remembered in his mind that a slowdown in the American economy contributed to his loss in the presidential election of 1968. So during his first term as president, uh, 69 to 73, he was very sensitive to avoiding deflationary pressures in the economy. So he wanted to expand the economy, and this included monetary expansion. And so this kind of added fuel to the fire that Johnson started. So the shorter answer to your question is politically motivated monetary expansions in the United States through the Johnson and Nixon administration placed the dollar under untenable pressures by 1971 in which something had to give. Either the Americans had to basically change their domestic economic policies, or they had to do what great powers often do, which is to change the rules of the game and simply end uh, the international monetary system as it was understood. And Nixon uh, chose the latter. That's perfectly clear. Thank you very much. Uh, But was there a connection between the monetary regime change and the other major decision of Richard Nixon, which is the so-called U-turn on China? I don't think so. I think we can break Nixon down into three parts. Again, I have a bit of a Nixon fetish, so we could probably break him down into 100 parts, but I want to break him down into three parts uh, for this discussion. There was Nixon, the international statesman, and this was the part of the presidency that he loved the most. And the China policy was part of that grand vision. I am a great geopolitical thinker. I have a vision for the next decade or two, and opening to China will be an essential piece of this puzzle. And Nixon was tended to be more interested in international politics than domestic politics. That said, Nixon was not actively engaged in international economic relations, even in this kind of external vision. He cared much more about the so-called high politics, the geopolitics, and much less about the, the kind of work in the trenches, the economic relations between states, except to the extent that it would affect American domestic politics. And there are wonderful conversations caught on the Nixon tapes about his advisors desperately trying to get him to pay attention to important economic developments in the world. And he brushes them off, often with colorful vulgarities about how little he cares about them. So Nixon, one, the geopolitical thinker. Nixon, two, the kind of guy who's indifferent to international economic relations. And coincidentally, this is also true of his principal national security advisor, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger who also was more of a big think geopolitical thinker and less engaged in economic issues. And I think that mattered here. But then third and most importantly, I think, Nixon was a political savant. He really understood American domestic politics. He obsessed over American domestic politics. 
And that is the basis upon which he made many key decisions. And so the decision to end the Bretton Woods international monetary system was rooted almost entirely in Nixon's assessment about American domestic politics and was not really nested in a larger geopolitical strategy. In other words, I think we can say that um, he was not really a friend of multilateralism and surrounded by uh, advisors, um, not only like Henry Kissinger, but also Milton Friedman. It's probably not a surprise that he was not keen to maintain or build multilateral organizations and turned his attention and energy towards domestic issues. Would that be a correct uh, assessment? Yes, but I would qualify it in two ways. I don't think he was inherently opposed to multilateralism in that I think I would phrase it as he would be unwilling to make sacrifices in order to support multilateralism. So if multilateralism could get the job done, he'd reach for that lever. But if participation in the rules of an international institution required him to make deep sacrifices, political sacrifices, he would not be willing to do that for the basis of multilateralism or for the basis of the institutions itself. Milton Friedman is a bit of an interesting character here. I would place more of the onus on Nixon's brash secretary treasury, John Connolly, who had sort of a nativist view of, of foreign economic policy and was closer to the description you initially gave of Nixon. Very, very disinterested and unconcerned about the problems of others and the importance of multilateralism in any way. And Connolly, as Secretary of Treasury, was the point person for U.S. international monetary policy, even though it's not what you would call his specialization. Friedman's role is that as a sort of libertarian-leaning conservative economist, Friedman supported the notion of a shift from fixed exchange rates to generalized float, which is globally the system close to what we had now. At the time, that was seen as a potentially unstable system, and the view that we could have kind of generalized floating exchange rates where currencies just bounced around wildly, was seen as actually slightly radical and some academic notion. That actually wasn't as big a catastrophe as the opponents of generalized floating feared, but Friedman had Nixon's ear in that sense, in that the idea that, well, you know, you could probably wreck this thing and the world wouldn't really collapse if you did, because this whole, you know, floating exchange rate system might in fact work. But we're back to the interwar years. There was one of the lessons of those, those that interwar period was concerns that exchange rates that were bouncing around and flows of hot money that would accompany them were inherently destabilizing. So one of the things the Bretton Woods system had was lots and lots of capital controls, for example, that limited the flow of currencies across borders. And that was seen, and I think correctly, by the way, uh, as relatively stabilizing of the international monetary system. So they didn't fear the unknown unknowns, even if this expression was not um, around at the time, probably. Luke, can I ask you to make a transatlantic um, shift and look at this um, story from the perspectives of the Europeans? Because for Europeans, I mean primarily West Europeans, obviously, in, in the post-war decades, the gold parity of the dollar also provided monetary stability. And when it was over, obviously Europe, I mean, Western Europe, those countries in the European Economic Community and the EFTA had to start thinking, but also acting more actively. 
about how to uh, manage the stability of the currencies without the United States. Do you see this direct link between the ambition of the Europeans to shift uh, their own integration towards the monetary sphere as opposed to trade and agriculture, which was the original uh, mission of the European economic uh, community? And is the EU you know, bound to be a monetary union under the current circumstances? Well, there's a lot there, but I think those are important questions, and I'll try and take them in sequence. I want to start with the initial break, because from the perspective of Europe, and just as importantly, Japan, where I think the, the Nixon shock was even felt more strongly, but, but we'll stick with Europe, um, this was something of a betrayal. This was a breaking of a promise, an understanding, a set of commitments. And Nixon's Treasury Secretary, John Connolly, famously told his European counterparts, uh, the dollar may be our currency, but it's your problem, uh, which did not endear him uh, to his, his European colleagues at the time. But yes, once the dollar system, once the fixed exchange rate dollar system is gone, and it takes a few years for it to really fully collapse. First, like Humpty Dumpty, they try and reproduce the Bretton Woods system for maybe a year and a half, and then and then they fail. European countries want, many of them crave monetary stability, right? Especially small open economies do not like their exchange rates bouncing around wildly because the international sector is such an important part of their economies. If the exchange rate is kind of bouncing around, there's constant instability in terms of uh, price levels and, and, and things like that. And so it was a natural consequence of the Americans breaking with gold and shifting towards generalized floating of exchange rates that led the Europeans to seek out greater monetary stability, at least within Europe, which is a very large economic area. And so that if somehow the European economies could be banded together, maybe Europe's currency system could float vis-a-vis -vis other currency systems, but at least within Europe, where a tremendous amount of trade and exchange is taking place, there could be stability of rates there, and that was seen as very valuable. And so we saw many incarnations of this, including, I think the first one was the European monetary system. And for a variety of reasons and fits and starts, this was more or less successful. It came to be viewed that it had to either be all or nothing, that if they wanted to do this, they either had to go for the common currency or abandon the project. And ultimately, and the part of this is the politics of the end of the Cold War and compromises there. But ultimately, the choice was made to converge toward a common currency. Now, there are some very, very, very big problems with this. Economists have a theory called optimal currency areas, which is a theory that does not explain much about how the real world works but it does tell us about the spaces where it makes sense to have a single currency. Europe is not that space. The two mm. big barriers to it being an optimal currency area are the lack of a shared fiscal policy and the relatively inhibited mobility of labor. You can compare those two things to the United States to see the contrast. And so the Europeans move toward a common currency, but it is a political project and it is in part an identity project. We will build the identity of Europe through this shared currency. But the politics of that project ran very far ahead of the economics of that project, 
leading to problems that would often surface, especially as we have seen in recent decades during periods of economic crisis. So it may be a nice idea and it may be a political idea and it may be a good ideological project, but as an economic project, it is not obviously wise or coherent. Does it make you a skeptic about the sustainability of um, the single currency of the European Union? I, I would be a skeptic, um, but I'm a skeptic about many things. And I think I, what I need to do is acknowledge that the common currency has held on for longer than I would have thought, because the, the consequences of the common currency have been to impose some pretty severe misery uh, on principally peripheral members uh, of the union. And it has been surprising to me that those members have been willing to stay. I would have argued it was unsustainable, but so far it would look like I am wrong. <laughs> Uh, well, indeed, uh, that's uh, the picture for the time uh, being. Um, I uh, remember many other economists, uh, Paul Krugman eminently, uh, predicting the collapse of the euro at the time of the great euro area uh, debt crisis nine or ten years ago. And indeed, um, what was lacking is the appreciation of the political commitment, at least at that time. But let's also appreciate that uh, some reforms of um, the Economic and Monetary Union have been implemented. Uh, the latest crisis response is different than uh, uh, the previous one, which is a kind of silver lining in this uh, story. But much of the talk today is um, about the strategic autonomy of the European Union, while indeed when it comes to the reform of the EMU, it often uh, points to the external role and representation of um, the euro. Um, what is the connection between the two? If Europe wants real strategic autonomy, does it mean Europe also needs to further consolidate, reinforce uh, the economic and monetary union and make it more robust? Well, I'm, I mean, my, my day job is to study international politics. And my instinct in that context would be if Europe wants to view itself as an autonomous strategic actor collectively, then it would probably have to move forward uh, with more ambitious collective economic reforms. I mean, a basic problem in European economic management is that you have economies of Europe experiencing different phases of the business cycle at different times. And so the idea that we could have a uniform monetary policy for all of those countries is a little puzzling. Now, again, to take the American case, and this is not to wave the flag, as it were, uh, speaking to you as an American, but simply to observe that in the U.S., if one region of the country uh, is, say, growing more slowly than another region of the country, there are natural stabilizing factors in place. Tax revenues from the declining areas to the center are reduced. Tax revenues from the expanding centers are increased, and there's a natural redistributive effort there. Also, there's labor mobility. But nobody says in one part of the country, well, the economy is booming, so we've got to tighten monetary policy, really kind of sticking it to uh, that part of the country that's in distress, and the last thing they need is a tighter monetary policy. So it's one thing to have the uniform uh, monetary policy looking out for the interests as they are perceived for the country as a whole. But because of 
fiscal union and labor mobility, there are more automatic stabilizers for these disparate shocks felt across the United States, which of course has its own political problems that I would not minimize for a moment. But in Europe, even though the European project is, I think, laudable and ambitious, there are some divides there, often north-south divides, in which participants will commonly refer to things like we and they, uh, which is not a way you're supposed to be describing the practice of economic policy. It's all supposed to be one big us. And so that can become a problem for the crafting of what are appropriate policies, because monetary policy in particular tends to be about sharing and distributing the burdens of adjustment that result from problems that emerge in the economy. And if there is that mentality of us versus them, or we and they, and if we are a lot bigger than they, then it may be that they are asked to bear a much larger mm-hmm. burden of those inevitable adjustments that come when there is a shock to the economy. You mentioned automatic stabilizers. What would be the most obvious examples for you? I do think it is, and, and this, is, this drifts a little far from my narrow areas of technical expertise, But my understanding is a key element here is the pooling of fiscal resources. So that instead of thinking about one country within Europe uh, as having a surplus or a deficit in its accounts, you wanted to be thinking about Europe as having a surplus or a deficit in its accounts and not looking at deficit countries, either in their fiscal policies or in their external accounts as having problems that need correcting, but rather looking at this holistically. And that, of course, gets you toward fiscal pooling, the idea that there is a kind of common source of revenue for the entity. And that mm. touches back on the, the, what I said earlier in our conversation, which is that the political project of the common currency raced ahead of the economic foundations for a common currency. Now, the founders of the common currency understood this, but they just thought it would naturally catch up, that they would kind of lead Europe forward and pull it towards things like a kind of more fiscal pooling. Um, I don't think that's happened to the extent that they hoped that would happen. And the crises that occurred along the way exposed kind of these contradictions in the politics and the economics of the European project. Well, indeed, um, many of us in the social democratic uh, political family would highlight the necessity of um, common fiscal capacity, fiscal risk sharing, including um, unemployment insurance or reinsurance in the EMU space. While I suppose uh, some other people who say, oh, there have been so many, uh, so much volatility of exchange rates, so much financial instability, you would need to bring back gold because the problem is that in 1971, they cut the connection between not only the dollar and gold, but in general currencies and gold. So is it over for gold or uh, somehow returning to gold would represent um, a potential to stabilize currencies? I'm more personally with the first half of what you suggested than the second half, which is I think if you want to have a monetary union, you need to be have much more ambitious fiscal pool. 
As for the gold part, uh, my short answer is no. Uh, gold, I think, has a role as an emergency store of value for people, especially in uncertain times. So people can buy gold and they can say, I feel a little comfortable now having this gold. But as a monetary instrument, as a plausible monetary instrument, it is implausible and I'm going to use the word catastrophic. And I do mm. think um, that many of the monetary pathologies of the interwar period could be traced back to the fact that gold does not work well as the basis of a monetary system. It is, as the founders of the international monetary system after the Second World understood, simply painfully deflationary and also unpredictable uh, in, in its functioning. But it's the painful deflationary aspects of any gold-based system uh, that I think render it, I'm going to use the word useless, uh, as the basis uh, for an international monetary system. I think the best book on this remains Barry Eichengreen's book called Golden Fetters on the gold standard and the Great Depression and the links between the two and how the gold standard exacerbated the Great Depression and also the rules of the gold standard made it impossible for those who wanted to stay on the gold standard to take the measures necessary to help their economies recover uh, from the depression. And it's you hear a lot of loose talk about the return to gold, usually more politically motivated than economically motivated with the implicit notion that it would somehow prevent governments from doing a lot of things because they would be in this gold standard straitjacket. But yes, that's mm -hmm. what it would be, a straitjacket. And since I'm more of a discretion over rules kind of a guy anyway, I do not want to be put in a deflationary straitjacket. Uh, wonderful. And thanks very much also for recommending a book, because very often we end the conversation with a recommendation of uh, further readings. And you mentioned Barry Eichengreen and his uh, book, which is certainly a classic. I wonder if you can also recommend a cinema. I'm asking this question because I went, um, uh, when it came out, um, uh, to see the epic movie about Richard Nixon, Uh, by Oliver Stone. As an economist, I went there to see uh, what he has to say, if anything, about the Nixon shock, the, the end of gold convertibility of the US dollar. And there was practically nothing in this long uh, movie about this. So I wonder if there is um, a need in, um, in, in literature, in popular culture, to tell people more about, um, you know, how money works, how currencies works, why they are important, how monetary unions can be formed and how they cannot be formed. How would you comment on that? Uh, there may be a need from the supply side, but I do think the demand side would be the problem, which is at least for commercial movies, movies that are designed to be shown in theaters or virtually now <laughs> streamed uh, in order to reach a large audience, in order to make a profit. I'm skeptical that getting into the weeds of international finance, uh, even in, in this era where we've had giant consequential financial crises, uh, is going to be a logical thing that filmmakers reach for. You mentioned the movie about Nixon, uh, Oliver Stone's movie about Nixon. And there have been a ton of movies about Nixon. I have, as I mentioned, I have a little Nixon fetish, so I keep on top of these things. And very few of them 
focus on the Nixon shock of August uh, 15th, 1971, um, because there's so much more cool stuff to talk about. You know, Nixon mm. had, you know, the Watergate saga. Nixon fought the Vietnam War. Nixon was a very strange man who had all these interesting political conflicts with people. Uh, there was a lot of tumult in the social and domestic political atmosphere in America at the time. These are the stuffings of high drama. Stopping the movie to talk about pressure on the dollar because the Bretton Woods system, as Robert Triffin warned us, was not possibly sustainable, it would stop a movie dead in its tracks. Uh, and I, I don't mm. think it's, it's easy to do effectively. There was one movie uh, from, I think, 1981 called Rollover with an outstanding director, Alan J. Pakula, and a very strong cast. I think Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson, Hume Conan was in it. And uh, it was kind of a financial caper movie that focused on the manipulation of a financial crisis. And that uh, was a, a very bad movie. Uh, and, and I'm a big fan of uh, Alan Pakula's work, um, but it just does not, I don't think, have the obvious dramatic urgency that movie audiences uh, want to see. So maybe this could be kind of the stuffing of gripping fiction. Uh, surely there must be great fiction to be written about the dramas uh, of the financial crisis, although nonfiction uh, does pretty well. I would, in this capacity, I would recommend very strongly, especially uh, for a European audience, uh, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times is a book called The Shifts and the Shocks, which I think mm -hmm. is an outstanding uh, book that I rec also recommend highly. Indeed. Uh, Professor uh, Jonathan Kirchner, thank you so much for this um, conversation. I think um, we learned a lot. We look back to what exactly happened 50 years ago in Washington, D.C. with the dollar and the gold and uh, discussed many, many implications for global power relations and especially for European monetary integration. So the reading list and the cinema watch list has also been updated. And I'm particularly grateful also for these recommendations. Thank you so much for being with us. And I thank our audience for the attention in the middle of August to uh, such serious issues of political economy. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking about this stuff. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>